Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. The guest this week is Tim Worthington, creator of a bunch of really awesome RGB mods for consoles, so I'm really excited to have him on. But for now, let's jump in with the news. Early last week, I worked with Mark from My Life in Gaming to test the SNES Retro Receiver. That's the Bluetooth dongle that plugs into an original SNES console made by 8BitDo that allows you to connect wireless controllers, including their Super Nintendo-style one, which I always liked. Um, I did a quick video showing what we found, which is basically that it works great, but it requires a firmware update, otherwise there's compatibility issues. And I was also a guest on their live stream, where Mark played through a couple of games on it and didn't have any problems at all. He tried a few different controllers and um, a few different games, and everything seemed fine. So I guess as long as you update the firmware, it should be perfect. I actually also learned something about Mark from My Life in Gaming. Apparently, he sounds a little bit like Tom Hanks. Wilson! <laughs> oh, I I'm sorry, Mark. Could you do that again? I couldn't really hear you. Wilson! <laughs> Maybe one more time, just so everybody can see for themselves. Wilson! <laughs> Hmm. Next up, Smoke Monster updated his ROM set with a Game Boy Advance collection. So for anybody who's new to the podcast and hasn't heard me talk about it before, Smoke Monster has taken all of the best collections of ROMs and put them together for each one of the ROM carts available. So he has Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Genesis, pretty much everything you could imagine. Um, and people test them and make sure they're working with all of the EverDrives, so it's really the best source for them. Um, I don't really know what the rules are for posting links to ROMs, so if you literally just Google Smoke Monster ROM set, you'll find a link to the forum where he keeps them, and uh, you have to sign up in order to see the links, but it's free and it's not spammy or anything, um, and they're really great. Um, the Game Boy Advance one's obviously perfectly timed for the release of the GBA EverDrive, which I'm still waiting on, so I can't really do a review or test any of it, but maybe it'll show up eventually. Cable Maker Retro Console Accessories has just come out with something that I've been kind of hoping for for a long time now. They basically offer their standard console cables, but with BNC and audio ends to them. So this way, if you really only have one or two game consoles that you love, you don't have to deal with switches or adapters. You just buy the cables that you need and plug them directly in. And it's also kind of neat if you're crazy and have a bunch of RGB monitors. Um, you could set up maybe one console per each or something like that. Um, but the other huge uh, advantage of this is for people that use Xtron crosspoint switches. So those are the BNC uh, connecting switches that accept RGB and component as well as pretty much everything else. But one thing to note, a lot of the larger Xtron crosspoints have huge spaces between the RGB lines. So when you get your average adapter like this one, so it's basically this is your standard SCART to BNC adapter, you'll notice how long the ends are for this. So if you were to get one of the larger Extron cross points, that's actually way, way too short. So I ordered mine. Um, I plan on using mine just directly with monitor, but in case I ever to get another cross point, look at the difference in length in mine. I'll try to hold it back so you can see everything, but it's like three times the difference in length. And uh, I'll obviously try to post pictures up right here to show example of what it is. But basically when you order them, just tell them which one you need. If you're going to a smaller cross point where they're together or just an RGB monitor, you could have a shorter length and it's probably way easier to manage like that so you don't have everything kind of flopping around. And just remember to get the much longer length if you're going to a cross point, um, which is pretty annoying to deal with if you're going directly into a monitor. But I wanted to have... Um, uh, the ability to do both, so I'll just deal with it. I'll probably, when I hook it up, 
just kind of like zip tie it or something and keep it in. But um, definitely a great addition to their collection, and I'm really happy they finally added these. They're a bit expensive, but, I mean, you get what you pay for. They're all shielded cable, and the BNCNs are much more expensive than just getting regular cable to SCART. So I think overall it's a fair price. The creators of the Neo Geo Pocket ROM cart have just announced two different products this week. The first is a Wonderswan ROM cart. The Wonderswan, for anybody that doesn't know, is a portable console. I think it was really only released in Japan. Um, and this ROM cart, at the moment, can hold 15 ROMs plus a menu. Um, and that's all transferred via USB connection to your computer. It actually has a micro SD card slot on it, which is not currently enabled, but they're hoping that in future firmware updates that you'll actually be able to just drop in a micro SD card and read ROMs directly off of it. There's no guarantee for that yet, but it's looking pretty promising. They've also announced a project where they've taken a Raspberry Pi Zero and created a custom circuit board that turns a Game Boy Advance into an emulation machine. It's kind of neat. Um, I think they have their own um, uh, LCD panel for it, but it uses the D-pad and buttons of a Game Boy Advance. They're not making too many of them, but it seems kind of like a cool thing to do, so I'll be following that project as it progresses, but definitely excited about the Wonderswan flash cart. Every time there's a, a rare console that I want to check out, it's, uh, it's so hard to try to track down expensive games for it, and ROM carts just make it so much easier. You know, just play through a bunch of games in the library, decide what you figure is your favorites, and then I would buy those. So um, I hope they keep coming out with stuff like this. A member of the Shmups forum posted a guide on how to force 480p mode in Mega Man 9 and 10. So for anybody that hasn't run into this before, um, Mega Man 9 and 10 are NES-style Mega Man games that were pretty cool that were released on a few different platforms in 480i. So there's been attempts to force them to 240p so it looks just like the originals, which don't really work. Um, but Arizoi, and I think that's how you pronounce the screen name, posted a guide on how to make it 480p. So it's still better than an interlace signal, and you could always downscan it um, using an Extron Emotia or something if you really wanted to force the 240p mode. But it's a bit complicated, so if you're not really into Wii soft modding, um, maybe somebody will release the wads online. But definitely worth doing if you like those games, because interlace flicker usually gives me a headache. Um, and I really don't understand why Capcom didn't release those in you know, all three modes, 240p, 480i, and 480p. But hopefully someday we'll get a true 240p mode out of them. A Japanese company is about to release a digital video box for the TurboGrafx-16 and PC Engine systems. It's called the Upper Graphics, and it's a 720p adapter that outputs DVI or HDMI with an adapter. This is the same box that Jason from GameTech reviewed a few, uh, I think a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Um, and the release date is August 26th, but it looks like it's going to sell for about $350. So it looked great, Jason seemed to like it, but for that kind of money, you could get a Framemeister. So I'm not really sure who they're trying to market this to, but um, maybe I'm missing something about this. But, uh, I mean, I recommend checking out the page if you're into this stuff, but I just couldn't imagine spending that much just for one console when you could get upscaler solutions for every console for the same price. Some updates for the open source scan converter. Um, you're now able to purchase a bare bones do-it-yourself kit from Video Game Perfection, um, but that has no components on it at all. You're basically just getting the PCB and case for it, and you have to order all the components yourself. Um, and just the kit's $50. Uh, and if you have the ability to do 
you know, um, complicated soldering and stuff. If you know how to bake things together, or if you want to, if you're really good at soldering SMD components, this might be a, a fun project for you. But this is not for the faint of heart. This isn't easy at all, and I really don't recommend anybody do this unless you're already used to doing stuff like this. Um, also, if you sign up for their newsletter, you could be put on a list to be uh, one of the people to purchase the pre-assembled ones, which it looks like they're going to be getting some decent stock of that in soon, so there won't be a long wait much longer for it. But uh, I'll tweet and Facebook update as soon as they're actually for sale or for pre-order, um, but for now the only way to do it is to go on the uh, waiting list. So hopefully we'll actually be able to buy these regularly pretty soon. Another small update to the Neo Geo ROM cart project. Darksoft has posted pictures of the PCBs that will be required and still says that he should have a video of it working within a few weeks. Um, I'm still really excited for it uh, and think that $400 is a reasonable price for something like this. I mean, there's multiple large PCBs involved, each with components, and it's meant to replace games that sell for hundreds each. So it's a fair price, um, and I'm really looking forward to finally trying it out. Uh, and I hope that he comes out with the home console version as quickly as the actual arcade version. So uh, anytime there is any solid updates, I'll definitely continue to update everybody. Engadget just posted a pretty cool interview with somebody who is the head of marketing for Microsoft Xbox games. And they discussed how this might be the last console generation. There might be small hardware spec bumps every couple of years rather than huge uh, reimaginings of it, which is something that we'd been talking about in the Q&A and in the comments um, over the past few weeks. So I figured I would just leave a link to it in the description, and if anybody was interested, give it a read. But I know it's not really retro gaming related, but it kind of applied to things that we'd been talking about, so I figured I'd share. 8BitDo, the same company that makes the SNES Retro Receiver, as well as all those cool Bluetooth controllers, posted something on their social media pages. And I normally wouldn't want to report on something that's just silly hype, because they didn't post any info on it at all. They just basically said they're showcasing it at um, Gamescom in Cologne, Germany. But it looks like a pretty cool tabletop arcade system. Um, I kind of like an arcade, but with everything built in. And I've always wanted something like that. I actually thought taking a 14-inch Sony BVM monitor and making that into a tabletop arcade would probably be the best, but this looks like it has a small LCD screen and a six-button arcade controller all built into one. And if it turns out to be a cool main machine, this is something I would definitely buy. Um, hopefully it's not like something you'd find on ThinkGeek, where it's just a little novelty that you play with once and leave it on a shelf. Hopefully it's an actual playable main machine where not too much lag and everything's configured. But if they post any new info on it, I'll let you know. Um, I emailed them about it, and I got a response about something totally different. I find that they're a really, really hard company to communicate with. Maybe that's just my luck, or, or maybe they just don't like me. But um, if I have any real info for it, I'll post it again. But if not, uh, I get the pictures up for people watching on YouTube, so at least it's something cool to look at. My friend Justin, a.k.a. Goodwill Hunter on YouTube, found something really cool at a thrift store. He found a TN Lee Genesis VCD player. So, as far as I can remember, China had some pretty strange laws about video game sales. They were It was illegal to sell a video game console, so you couldn't just sell a game console. So, manufacturers came up with things like calling them education machines, or in this case, it's a video CD player. 
Uh, and for anybody that doesn't remember those, um, you could basically take video and put it on a compress it and put it on a CD instead of a DVD, which was cheaper to make back in the early 2000s. Um, and this player also plays Genesis games that only came on VCDs as well. So it was a neat little trick to get Sega games into a market where you weren't allowed to sell video games. Um, and he did a quick video on it, which uh, I'll post in the descriptions, and then he's going to be sending it to me to take apart and kind of see how it works and check the different inputs and stuff. So I, uh, I'm pretty excited. I always love playing with you know, weird stuff like this, and uh, I've never really seen any of the Chinese consoles. So it'll be kind of cool to see what encoder it uses, you know, if it outputs RGB, if you could output the video CDs in RGB. But um, expect a video from me on that within a few weeks, I guess. Uh, and check out Justin's channel if you want to see any of his other videos. He's got a bunch of cool stuff on there and always finds some crazy deals. He actually helped me out when I first was starting the website. Uh, I talked to him about it, and he had found a ton of great deals, which was the only way I was able to afford starting the website and buying a bunch of this junk you see behind me in the boxes. Uh, so I always owe him a big favor for that, and a big thanks to him for sending me this so I could check it out. So hopefully I'll have a good video soon for you. And finally, My Life in Gaming just uploaded a video about FrameMeister alternatives. It's an awesome video with tons of picture and video comparisons so you could see the differences between each of them. Um, they'd actually helped me out with my page on this as well. Um, so did Firebrand X uh, contributed a lot, and as always, Fuda, Fuda, I never pronounced that right. Um, but this was uh, a big effort by them, and really a great, great job. Um, I'll post links to that, and uh, as well as my page that covers something similar in case anybody wants a page reference for it as well. Uh, but their videos are always awesome. Um, I mean, I keep trying to put out more videos now. I did uh, the SNES Retro Receiver one. Um, I'll have one out for the Toro next week. But all of mine are going to be just very basic, short overviews of things. Um, those guys always have the awesome quality videos, and I'm really glad that they keep doing this stuff. I think it's a big help for everybody. Um, and their their comparisons are always perfect too. Really helps to see them. So recommend that everybody go watch it. It's kind of a long one. So grab some popcorn and a beer and sit back on your couch and watch it on a big screen. Now on to the Q&A stuff. Last week I'd asked people to chime in on the NTSC vs. PAL debate on what you should do if you wanted to play games from both regions. Um, should you actually buy two separate consoles or just buying one and modding it good enough? And the general consensus was that you should buy an NTSC console and mod it to uh, be able to use PAL games as well. Um, there were a couple of reasons for this, but the main was that NTSC games run at 60Hz and PAL games run at 50 And in many cases, game developers just slowed the game down for the slower uh, speed, which kind of took away from the experience in certain games, and even sometimes you get the sound was off. Not all games, but in certain scenarios. So having one console with a Switch would allow you to play mostly the NTSC stuff, unless there was a PAL-specific translation that you'd wanted. Um, Callum Wilson actually also posted about something that I had completely forgotten about. 240p resolution on NTSC consoles is basically a way of doing 480i and progressive scan. I don't want to get into the details of that because I can go off for quite a long time, but um, for PAL region games, it's 576, so it's half of that, 288. So I'm not sure in which cases this would matter, because each of the SNES and Genesis used their own resolution that was a little bit smaller than that. 
But I'm wondering in which cases would it be a problem that it's not an integer scale into 720p or 4K. So if anybody has any info on that, that would actually be a cool thing to talk about as well. Um, and thanks to Callum for reminding me about that. And uh, more importantly, though, thanks to everybody for chiming in. That was awesome. You guys had so many really cool responses and, uh, you know, things that I had read a long time ago but forgotten about, uh, you guys reminded me of. So maybe someday I'll get around to doing a NTSC vs. PAL section on the differences and maybe just dedicate a page to stuff like this but really great feedback from you guys so thank you so much i really appreciate it and if anybody has any thoughts to chime in about the integer scale of pal resolution i'd like to hear about that too so thanks again next co-op shop asked about splitting a component video signal to two different tvs um, you could always use a Y cable, but I don't think that's good for anything. I think it puts too much resistance on the lines, and it's probably not a good idea at all. If you were just doing something for a few seconds, like maybe doing a lag test or something, I think it would be fine, but I wouldn't recommend gaming like that. But luckily, a lot of component video equipment that used to be really expensive uh, has come down in price because it's not that popular anymore. So you can get devices from Xtron and Audio Authority on eBay that's used that would probably do everything you need. Um, I don't have any experience specifically with component video splitters, but um, you could certainly get an Xtron matrix switch, um, which you could then use the BNC to, com uh, BNC to RCA adapters, and then you could have as many outputs as are listed. Um, it's probably a bit of an overkill for your solution, but you could find those for about a hundred bucks. So maybe if you needed a component switch that had eight inputs and four outputs, that might actually be the best solution for you. But if anybody else has any suggestions, definitely let me know in the comments. A few people had actually posted info on good places to find Sony PVM monitors. Um, Ron McAdams recommended local medical recyclers. Um, and he said he'd called one and was able to pick up a 20-inch PVM for $50, which I thought was pretty great. Um, Fritz's Corner actually posted a link to one, .med.com. Um, and those are basically when people are listing older medical equipment for sale, which a lot of these are Sony PVMs. So those are great tips. Uh, and if anybody else has any websites like that, um, definitely share. Um, because, you know, people on eBay are really starting to jack the prices up for these things. So if we could find stuff uh, in good quality elsewhere, it would be really awesome. So thanks for the tips. Next, Philip Stork asked how I was able to run another Metroid 2 Remake in 240p. So another Metroid 2 Remake is that awesome PC game that's a remake of Metroid 2 Return of Samus. Um, and I just used an arcade VGA card in my PC. So my little trick is to boot it in 480p mode or, or even 800 by 600 and then go in, set up the game, get everything ready, and then I change it to 240p, just 320 by 240, and then launch the game. Um, and that always works. I vaguely remember some of the earlier versions of AM2R. I had to go into the video settings and uh, select the video sync in full screen modes or something like that, but... Basically, it was just setting my computer to 240p mode, loading up AM2R, and then double-checking the video settings. But it's a highly recommended way to play it. I thought it was really awesome. Uh, and for anybody who has this setup and trying to use it in an RGB monitor, I believe the Arcade VGA still outputs RGB HV, so two sync signals. But if you just pump it through an Xtron RXI interface, you could output RGBS, and it'll work on any Sony PVM in either 480i or 240p mode. So hope that helps. 
I got a pretty cool email from Mike Bateman last week um, talking about his setup and the upscaler he uses. So he runs all of his consoles into a switch and then into a RGB to component converter. Then from there he goes into his AVR, his stereo, uh, through the component video input and then lets that output HDMI 1080p. So he uses the upscaler built in and he claims he gets less than a frame of lag on that or about a frame only. So I was pretty intrigued uh, and I emailed Fuda, Fuda, I I know I'm getting that wrong, I'm sorry man, Um, but uh, he actually emailed right back and said that a lot of the AVRs use the same processor as the FrameMeister, but remember that the FrameMeister can't do 240p, that requires an FPGA before it. So um, basically the 240p signal goes through one chip on the FrameMeister and then uh, from there uses the, I believe it's a Marvel family upscaler to go to the different signals. So that's why it's one and a half frames of lag on a FrameMeister instead of less than a frame. Um, So if 240p is working on this, it's most likely that the AVR is treating it as 480i. So it should work well for some people. Um, It's probably a better solution than a lot of those really laggy uh, little boxes that go from SCART to HDMI. Um, And, you know, if you just want a cheap solution, I would rather have something that doesn't look perfect but has almost no lag than the opposite. Um, But this also kind of opens up another discussion in that I wonder how much you could actually use these AVRs to your advantage. So because it's got the same processor as the FrameMeister, would I be able to pump the open source scan converter into it uh, in line triple 720p mode and then use it to go to 1080p pretty much in the same way that I would use the DVDO scalers but I'd much rather use an AVR for it because now it's one piece of equipment that could do multiple things so if anybody has any thoughts on that that would be really cool to talk about in the comments because I know it would seem too good to be true but to find like a 4k AVR that does integer scaling um, you know I would assume that it would not except 240p correctly, but if you could put the open source scan converter into it, maybe that's the perfect solution. Um, But anybody that has any info, please chime in. I'd really love to hear what everybody has to say. And lastly, a few people commented about the Retrobrite comment that I had made to Scott when I was talking last week. So when I had mentioned Retrobrite, I didn't mean to talk about the pre-mixed solution. I was actually just referring to the combination of stuff that you could make yourself to put on consoles to reduce the yellowing. Um, So that's something I I really wanted to get into eventually. I already have the console cleaning page on the site with a little video I did of how I like to clean it with dish detergent. But the RetroBrite solution that you could make yourself um, is something that I really want to try as well. So uh, the comments were that it's basically just hydrogen peroxide and hair cream mixed together. Um, I kind of wanted to go through and see the different mixes online and experiment. Um, and I was actually probably going to pop down to my favorite game store, Retro Games Plus, in uh, the one near me in Norwalk, Connecticut, and see if they had any old console cases uh, or, or just any old consoles that were cheap that I could buy. So I could try two or three different ways to do it. Um, but if anybody has a link to their favorite guide on how to do it, or if there isn't one, or just a basic recipe for it, uh, let me know what's worked best for you guys, and I'll try to recreate it and uh, do the test myself and see which one works the best. Might be a little while till I get to it, but uh, I'd like the info if anybody has it. So um, thanks again for commenting and letting me know, uh, and hopefully we could find like the best way to do it and make it yourself. 
Okay, up next I have an interview with Tim Worthington, the creator of the NES RGB and the Atari 2600 RGB and a million other awesome things that I use on a regular basis. Um, I had a blast talking to Tim, um, and, you know, I try to keep the interviews under an hour just to, or about an hour just so that it doesn't run on too long uh, I, I want people to be interested and not you know not bored with any of these things but I could have easily talked to him for twice as long about a million different things so um, hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I do and hopefully um, he'll come back again in a couple months and do a follow-up and talk about whatever else is coming out next um, his video camera wasn't working so for people watching on YouTube, I don't want to bore you guys to death with just a video of me talking. So I have footage of the NES RGB, the Atari 2600 RGB, basically footage of his products in action. So you have cool stuff to look at while uh, while the interview's going on. And obviously anybody listening as a podcast, it won't really matter anyway. But um, I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do, and uh, see you next week. Hey guys, I'm here with Tim Worthington, creator of the NES RGB and a long list of other really awesome stuff. How's it going, Tim? I'm going well. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. Uh, a ton of people have asked me to get you on, and uh, I'm going to try to not chew your ear off for a whole long period of time. I just uh, definitely have a bunch of questions about all your products and stuff like that, though. Yeah. So you're um, you're in Sydney, Australia, right? That's correct, yeah. So all the all the times that I traveled to Asia, uh, it was mostly 12-hour time differences. So it was really easy for my brain to comprehend, you know, 8 a.m. is 8 p.m. But it's kind of funny because it's 8.30 p.m. for me. I'm about to crack my first beer of the evening, and it's, what, 10.30 a.m. for you? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's still kind of mind-blowing, but uh, I never really got used to that fully. But, uh, yeah, so, well, um, so I guess... How did you get started in all this? Because you have so many really awesome products that no one had ever really even approached before. So are you uh, like an engineer by trade? Uh, yeah, I am an engineer. Um, well, I was at the previous job I was at. Now I, I won't run my own business, but prior to that I was designing various things. I was working for an electronics design, um, what do you call it, a consultant. Okay. So I'd, I'd get hired for doing various things and just doing what I was told basically. That actually has a lot of variety in that, so that could be fun. There was, but um, I was doing it for a few years, but prior to that, I mean, I'd been doing that while I was doing my projects, but before then, when I started doing the gaming-related things, I was a technician, TV repair technician. Oh, a TV repair technician? Yes. Oh, so, okay, well, that's why you have a lot of knowledge on that end, too. That really must have come in handy for the video game stuff. Well, yeah, it started that way. It, it uh, Yeah, it's... I like to work on TVs, and that became a non-viable thing eventually when people stopped repairing them, and I had to <laughs> do something else. Huh, well, that's really cool. So what was the, the actual first product that you sold? Because I think by the time I stumbled across your site, you had a, a few of them up there. Mm. Uh, that was the first one I sold. I did sell some very obscure things a long time ago that no one remembers, so I'll forget about them. <laughs> um, for the, for the first one that probably people uh, still sell is um, the, the Sega Master System FM board. Right. That, that, that was done in 07. So I actually, um, that was how I got introduced to your work was uh, I'm friends with Phil Falco, who I think uh, you've talked to over the years, and he yep. got one of your FM boards, so I went over to do the audio comparison, and it was by far the closest thing to the original, to the point where we really couldn't even tell the difference. We had to, like, you know, crank up the audio and try to listen, so that was all, that was pretty awesome. It's basically a copy of the original hardware 
with some improvements. I made some improvements. The, the original one was a direct copy, mm. and then I just kept modifying it and making it better, making it more compatible. Yeah. Yeah, that one, I think he installed the Switch into his, too, because it's like, when you're actually playing the games, you always want it on, but it's inevitable that a buddy of yours is going to come over and you have to just flip the Switch and show the difference. You know, it's really well, interesting to have. Some games are, are, I don't have very good FM music at all. Sometimes they just really rushed it all. They, a lot of them were never used. They um, released the game only in outside of Japan, and no one ever heard the FM sound. Maybe it wasn't very good or something like that. I don't know. Huh. The one that I actually always really liked the game Maze Hunter 3D, and I loved the FM in that. That's really what kind of turned me on to the whole thing. That and um, I think Outrun. There, there was a couple of them where it just made such a big difference to me. Oh yeah, it's not much better. Uh, yeah. There's a couple of games where it breaks the game if you have FM detected. It oh just really? Doesn't work. The game just doesn't work here. Huh? Do you remember your head which one that was? I'd have to look it up. I don't remember exactly. But I remember that's one of the main reasons for including the Switch, because some games, it might be Gangster Town, something like that. I don't really remember. That makes sense, because there was, um, you know, I have all of the light gun in 3D games, the original cartridge of that. It just, it's something I just really wanted to collect for no reason at all, I guess. But um, I play, I still play them all through the uh, the EverDrive. So I always just assume it's a problem with the ROM or with the converter I'm using or something. So I never really thought it could be that. That's pretty neat. So um, after that one, um, what was next after that? I guess the Game Gear TV? Um, yes, that was next. Think, yeah, I've, yeah. Uh, I've been using that one for a while, too. That one's awesome. I think... You know, you don't really realize that some of those Game Gear games are as good as they were when you have to play on that crappy little screen and, you know, being able it's to play really on crippling. Crippling monitor. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny because uh, I even remember being a kid and, like, I wanted to love it. I loved my Game Gear and I just, you know, I wanted to tell all my friends, oh, it's backlit in color, but I just remember sitting there having to, like, angle it and always trying to find the right way to see it just so I could, you know, end up playing the game, but... And the screens deteriorate with time, and they crack, and they're, they're just a lot more broken now. And you could easily make it a useful console if you had some way to get the video out. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. There's uh, the Behar brothers, the guys who do the Garo and uh, the Toro, all those Dreamcast boxes. They're just uh, they're trying to use your kit to do um, consoleized game gears now. They said they were going to try to do a small run just to kind of see if anybody liked it. But uh, yeah, that's neat. I would love to get my hands on one of those just to have like an okay. actual thing. So. So then I guess I remember uh, I remember seeing an early prototype of the NES RGB. How did that whole thing come about? Oh, that was um, <clears throat> that was because I found a forum post on NESDev. See, someone someone had originally that was the um the guy from RetroUSB, I believe. Mm-hmm. He was creating something like that. I way of, he 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 figured it out basically. Then somebody else figured out, he didn't post any details, and then somebody else figured out what he was doing and copied that, and then he made a forum post, and I found that just browsing the internet. And, and I thought, oh, that, that looks interesting. He's clearly, he's got RGB out of it. I don't know how, but I can find out. So I spent the day finding out, and I worked it out and I posted about it on the forum and just went and turned it into a product, like yeah. others. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, that was really impressive. I remember when I first heard about that. I went, well, how the hell is that possible? And then I, I read some of your posts, and it just, uh, 
you know, when from the first time I used it on, I was just so impressed because it just it just works perfect. Especially after like Firebrand X worked through all the little color palette details and all the you know a couple of the uh, firmware updates. I mean, it's really pretty much a perfect solution. Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy with it. Yeah, and um, so. I guess uh, the version that I'm having sent to me now, I wanted to uh, have Retrofixes do it for me because I'm not the world's greatest modder. It comes out fine, but I wanted it really nice. Um, he had the, I had him install that in the original Famicom with that extra board in back. Now that was something else that you designed for it as well that kind of added a few more features, right? Yeah, that put all, this, all the audio stuff and all the little features that I couldn't fit on the board originally. So it had, um, it, can, it can swap pallets with the controller, um, it's got a switching power supply and various other little things. Because I think uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that that board was available. And as soon as I get mine in, I'm going to do a full review of it and everything. But when I was well, actually, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not available at the moment. It's out of stock. Oh well, <laughs> well I mean I, I didn't think I didn't even know it existed to be honest. Until right, I just right. started to poke through your site and it just yeah. it had so many cool features that I like flipping the color palettes with the controller, and I believe you have it so that it routes both the audio channels as well as the expansion audio through it. Correct? Yeah, it, it's a full solution for the Famicom, so it does take over the whole audio thing. The the audio Famicom thing is a bit strange. I, people have been trying to. Um, add that audio mixing to the original NES consoles, which never had any audio mixing, and it doesn't work very well. There's a lot of noise problems. You can do it quite well on the Famicom because the the way the pins are arranged, it works much better on the Famicom hardware. Mm-hmm. So I really properly designed it so it would work well. Yeah, I looked into that a few years ago, and not being an electrical engineer, my methods of testing are, are solder stuff until it works, which is obviously terrible. But um, what I found was that doing the just mixing the two channels with a potentiometer, it is a bit noisy, but I, I kind of liked the way it came out. But the problem I had was when you tried to then add the expansion audio into that as well, it just it throws everything off because it throws the entire resistance of the lines off. So especially yeah. when you're using a potentiometer. So I think I remember posting on Nestev and somebody said you got to use like a digital audio amp circuit for that in order to get it done right. So I just I didn't have time for any of that. But um, is that where you're using it, or, or are you just uh, uh, properly routing the audio through? Oh, it's, you've got an active mixer in there. It's full of op amps and filters and various things like that. So it. it... It does what it's supposed to do. I can't remember the details anymore. Um, I haven't looked at the board for a while. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's based around the circuit, well, what the circuit's supposed to do in an original Famicom. Everything. Gotcha. Yeah. And will those be back in stock anytime soon? Maybe. It might be a while. I have to redesign some parts of it before I'm happy with it. So it, it may be maybe a couple of months. Okay. Or maybe, maybe I'll pull off. Yeah, I've been saying I've been t- saying October. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that's not too bad. That's right around. Yeah, yeah. So. Maybe, maybe end of October, something like that. I'm not sure exactly yet. Yeah, it's funny. The older you get, the the less time matters like that. You know, I remember if I was a kid and it's oct- uh, October from you know, August, I'd be going, oh, but that's so far away. Or you know, I'm 35. The thought of October is like one long fart away. It's not. <laughs> it's not even a far thing for me anymore. But so, all right, cool. Um, and then I think after that you did the 2600 RGB, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I'll, I, I've done some other things as well. Um, I, I did a, a lot of arcade stuff. Between the um, – after the, the Game Gear one, I did uh, a, a whole lot of arcade uh, interface hardware things. They're out of stock now, but I, I did sell them for a while. 
Oh, the, that's right. Those were the. Um, you know, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But wasn't that the converter board so that you could use uh, SCAR on JAMA equipment? Yeah, that, that's one. Yeah, that's. I, cool. also, I had some controller boards for that as well. That took a while to develop, but it didn't really go anywhere. I, the hardware, the, the audio and video were done quite well, but the controls was a bit silly, mm-hmm. so it didn't didn't work as well as I liked. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I remember seeing those as well, and I had um, a Mortal Kombat arcade machine for a while that I put a J-Pack in, and I absolutely loved it, but um, yeah, I just, uh, I think I think I'd want to build a, a separate main machine and then keep original arcade machines separately, so uh, I'll, I sold that, and I'll, I'll end up rebuying other arcade equipment eventually, but yeah, I'll have to put that on my list of stuff to buy once they come back in stock. So the um, the Atari one, um, that was another one that uh, I remember when you originally announced it, it was for 2600, but you said there was potential for it to work in some of the other Atari consoles. Is that, uh, am I getting that wrong? Uh, well, sort of. It's the, um, it, a lot of Atari stuff, there's, there's really only a few groups of different hardware there. There's their computer hardware, which is very different from their console hardware. Right. And the um, 7800, which is, it's a 2600 with an extra graphics chip, uh, basically. And that that can be modified. I think it can be modified to suit that, but it's a quite extensive modification. And uh, I mean, the design, not the actual board. You can't fit the board. You can actually fit the board to a, um, a 7800. And it does work. I've got one. I've tried it. And it um, just doesn't do this, the uh, graphics of the, the 7800 games. It just does 2600 games. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, what's the difference then? Maybe you could kind of just run through. So, I mean, we all know the basis of the 2600. And then it was, uh, what was it, the 5200 afterwards? And oh, that- I don't know. I don't know about that one because that was the US-only console. I've never seen one. Oh, that's right. Oh, I, got, I got a couple of those. I got to send you one of those <laughs> eventually to play with. Apparently they're very big. They're huge. They're annoyingly huge, and there's no point because when you open them up, the circuit board inside isn't nearly as big as the case. So what a waste of plastic tooling. But yeah, I always wondered the differences because I'd heard that there were similarities between the 7800 and the 2600. But I just mm. uh, a buddy of mine sent me one a few months ago, and I haven't even opened it up yet to check it out. So yeah, it's there's not much difference between the, the 2600 and 7800. It's got the same CPU. It's it's basically the same console like, with an extra graphics chip. It's, Hmm. I guess that would explain why the games aren't that much more impressive. Yeah, pretty much. Because, I mean, when it, you went from Nintendo to Super Nintendo, that was, you know, especially as a kid, that was a huge, massive difference. But yeah, I never, the hardware is very different. Yeah, and I never really played... Um, I had played the 2600, but I'd never played any of the others. And just in the past few years after starting the website, when I finally started to get into those other games, I just... it's Sometimes it was a little... Well, not a little, it was very disappointing to see, you know, this... The new modern Atari 7800 doesn't didn't really impress me at, at all. So, but they they do have a pretty loyal following. All these consoles do. So I guess eventually yeah, um, RGB mods on the list for every one of them. Um. So I guess uh, was there anything after the 2600 RGB? I know I want to talk about the AV driver, but I'll hold off on that because I got a bunch of questions about that one. Um. Don't think so. Not that I've released. Gotcha. All right, well, yeah. AV driver it is then. Um, so, could you just talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea for that and basically what it does? Oh, uh, the Nintendo 64 one. 
Oh, geez, how could I have forgotten about that? I love that one. All right, sorry. I just, I just got one sitting here. I just saw it. Yeah, that one. I remember that one. Yeah, and not only not only did I like that one, but that was a big deal because that now takes every N64 and allows an RGB mod on it. So hmm. um, that, that's, that's, a very, that's a very old project. Mm-hmm. I did that project a long time ago, but I never turned into a um, product until after the NES RGB. Huh. So didn't you actually post about that a long time ago and uh, another store kind of stole the idea and tried to make their own? Oh, yeah. A few people made it. I don't have a problem with that. But, um, oh, okay. The original design wasn't that good. It was just a hacked-together type of thing. I was using resistors directly to drive the, the video line. That's not very good. So um, it, basically, it wasn't designed as a product. It was just designed as, a here's a thing I made. You can make it if you want. Yeah. So... Um, I mean, how did you get the info to do that? I mean, is that something you just kind of poked around with uh, a scope and tried to reverse engineer it, or were there other things available? Um, I had a I had a logic analyzer at the time, mm-hmm. a, a very old cantankerous thing, and that um, it, it I was going to use it again to look at the um, I have to do some more changes to the software on that one to make it. There's a de-blurring thing that people want in there. I was right. going to going to investigate that, but um, my logic analyzer died. It got or garage got flooded and it, it's full of water and doesn't work anymore. Oh. So I, I I bought a new one. I just um haven't got around to looking at it yet. Gotcha. Yeah, so, I mean, there were so many things about that board that just, uh, I mean, not only did it open up the ability for all of them, but then having the chips that you used on that, being able to add the de-blur function. Um, and there was talks of having it auto-detect and having a manual switch. Um, well, yeah, that's the goal, to have it auto-detect. Um, without auto-detection, it's a bit annoying. Would you have to, you know, power off and power on the machine to switch it on and off, or would that be a real-time toggle if you were uh, added a manual switch to it? What do you mean? Like if you actually, I'll, I'll, just, I'll switch the feature. All oh, right, no, that that would just be um instant with the switch, like um the palette switching and the NES RGB. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, is that board tied into um, enough of the N64 already, where you could use something like a button combination, or would you add to have to change the board and add more I, I, tires? I would have to change the board, and I don't really want to do that. I don't. I mean, don't, not so much changing the board. I don't really want to require more wires into the controller section if I can avoid it. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you at all, because a lot of those solder points are pretty hard to, to get to. I got good at it just because I did a bunch of the Ultra HDMIs, and I did a few of yours, but it's, um, it's not a beginner-friendly process at all. So And the, the board revisions are a big deal. When you have to go and find other... Like, the video is pretty much the same. Like, the video chip is a big chip, and the um, analog-to-digital converter, you can find it easily, but finding bits of the control signals around. I mean, you could probably go for the controller port, but I don't want to have to have to have diagrams for different board revisions. I don't like that. Yeah, and that's a lot to keep up on. I think I don't think a lot of people realize how hard it is for just the documentation alone. Oh, it, it, the, the, things like the, the um, FM board for the, um, for the Master System, that's, there are so many different board layouts out there. I, I get... Even now, I still get people sending me pictures of new ones from Korea or something, and there's there's a lot of them. And the, the weirdest ones are in the places that people don't speak very good English. So I get people like, "Here's a board, fix it. I I, don't, I need another picture, and I need another picture, and it's hard to get it all together." 
Yeah, I've met a lot of people who live in Brazil where that um, the console was, uh, you know, a pretty big deal down there. It was, you know, yeah. like their Nintendo, I guess. Uh, and there are so many different revisions down there that I didn't even know existed. Um, not only just different names, but there's one with a Motorola video chip, not even the Sony CXA encoder. So it's kind of interesting to see how they Sega just licensed it around the world like that. Yeah, they just used whatever parts they had to build it, and they just happened to have the Motorola. Those horrible old Motorola things. Yeah. Um, they were they were used in Ataris as well. Uh, not Ataris, Amigas. They were the Amiga um, video converter box thing. Hmm. Or a horrible chip. I don't like that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny to see because Nintendo, you know, uh, I read the book um, where it was a uh, console war. So it was the story of the 90s between Nintendo and Sega. And they kind of, you know, it was a brilliantly written book, but they kind of poised Nintendo as the bad guy who, you know, controls everything. And then when you get into the other side of this and, you know, you see a bunch of different Super Nintendo revisions that are pretty pretty tightly locked down. They're the same around the world. And then you see, like, a hundred Master System revisions where they just let anybody build it as long as they paid the license fees and the you know and the games worked. So it's uh, maybe being stringent certainly has its advantages. Oh, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. So um, I guess the deep blur feature, uh, your logic analyzer, the new one came in, so that's probably a few months away before that's uh, an updated thing, right? Um. I want to get. I want to look at it soon. Maybe in a couple of weeks. Cool. Now, if somebody has an existing board, can they just uh, flash the firmware on it, or does this require a new board? They can upgrade the software on it with a programmer. That's awesome. And those cheap programmers you get from Hong Kong, those are. Uh, I was told that those are okay for stuff like this, where you just want to flash the firmware. Is that you know? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what I'd go for. That's what I use. Okay. Cool. Because I know, you know, there's a, a, a very large variety of programmers you can get depending on how deep in you want to go with this. But uh, I was told if all you want to do is flash the firmware, just grab the cheap one and it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, well, now on to the AV driver. <laughs> um, if you want to just uh, kind of tell everybody how that thing came about, because I've tested, you sent me a couple of them, and I've been testing them and thought it was really awesome. Yeah, that's a, um, it, it's basically what it is. It, it's a driver for audio and video signals and a sync driver there as well. It um it takes high impedance video and basically drives it a video line, a video a video cable to a standard seventy five ohm video input on a TV or monitor or something. And now didn't you originally design that for the PC engine turbo graphics consoles? That's basically the the reason why it exists. Uh, there, a lot of people have come up with various video drivers over the years for that console, but they, they always leave bits out. For example, they um, they can't drive the video signal, the composite video. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to keep that, some people might. For mm -hmm. uh, I should explain, um, the various um, versions, there's lots of different versions of the PC Engine hardware the original, or the earlier versions don't have a composite video output at all. They only have RF, mm. and the later versions only have composite video. They all support RGB, and they actually have RGB and composite video, and sometimes something that looks like S-Video available from the expansion port at the back of the console. But you can't connect that to a TV because it's, there's no circuitry designed to drive a signal line. Mm. So the, um, the I've tested a lot of the solutions, and um, I think 
I don't want to say any of them are bad, but the one that I the one that I I actually thought was great great quality and had all the features was the the DB Electronics one because it just plugs right in the back. Um, and they did design the whole circuit. You do get S Video Composite and all that. But the only issue is that can't be installed in the Duos. And if you use the Super CD attachment, um, that takes up the expansion port, so you can't use exactly. it. So that's what. Yeah, that's yeah, what I, I, the back is its is its a feature and its flaw. I did consider doing something like that a long time ago. I mean, this project's been very. A lot of my projects are like this. They take a long time to mature. So I have an idea, and I just sort of I might work on it for a bit, then put it away, and then come back to it a year later, and so on. This one went through a few reasons because I wanted to get it very small, as small as possible, but also very versatile. I wanted to, be able to have programmable gain and an input attenuator for the video as well as audio volume control. So I needed the, the video to be, um, for the PC engine, it um, doesn't matter that much. It's We know what the signal amplitude is for the video. All the consoles are the same. We can just have a fixed piece of hardware. But I wanted something that could be used in any application. So I wanted programmable video gain, but I want it to be set digitally somehow. So it could be set exactly the same every time. There's no potentiometers or anything like that you have to fiddle with. And I want the audio, I want potentiometers for that because the best way to adjust that is just to listen. There's no rigid standards for audio, but there is for video. Mm-hmm. So uh, as soon as I saw that thing, I, I just, you know, my brain went nuts on the different applications it could be used for. And, you know, I installed it into the Duo. I had that audio problem, which uh, you figured out for me. It wasn't your board. It was the board, motherboard of my unit. But... um the other thing, and it looked great in the duo. I mean, it was, you know, really great solution. But the other things I started thinking is, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is something that you could install in a console and you don't have to remove other parts. You might have to end up obviously using either a separate multi-out or cutting the traces of whatever the one that's on there. But if you wanted to install this into a console, you don't have to, like, lift pins and remove components, correct? Yeah, that's the idea. I don't like the idea of you have to break it a bit to, to add any extra features. I just want to add things to it. I don't want to remove the RF or something like that. But, I mean, you might have to remove the RF if you want to install a lot of stuff and there's no space or for reasons like that. But I don't want to make it necessary to remove parts of the console or change anything unnecessarily. I agree 100%. And it's funny because the only thing these days that I just don't care about removing is the RF adapter. Because you could always put one back in if you need to, which I don't know why you would need to. But it's, you know, it um, it just, the only thing that really gets me is I don't want to cut plastic ever again unless I absolutely have to. Because I have mods that I did three or four years ago that are useless now that now there's just a hole in the back of my console. So, um, but also lifting pins and stuff like that. And the more rare and the more expensive the console, the less I want to do it. So... There was a few Genesis mods I did. I think you, uh, you saw one of them, and you know I think you called it horrific. <laughs> I pulled the pins up on it because it was the yeah, only yeah. thing I could completely clean it up. And you know that was amazing <laughs> to do that on a twenty dollars Genesis. I mean, I didn't want to do it, but the end result was that the video was was perfect. So it was you know, and I, I still would rather have a solution where you didn't have to do that. But for a console like a Neo Geo or a PC Engine Duo, I don't want to touch anything. Those things were expensive new, and they're they're starting to get even more expensive now. So um, that's why, you know, as soon as I saw that, and especially with the audio as well, because there are a lot of consoles that have audio issues, that now you can just route everything through it, you know, RGBS and left-right audio and, and just have it. 
Um, it's audio is always going to be a problem because the often um, the way consoles are developed, they often have multiple audio sources and they have to mix them together somehow. So you've got to find a source, a spot where the audio is after the mixer, or make a mixer yourself somehow. So uh, it's not it's not as easy as the video, the audio stuff. Um, have you have you thought about maybe making some kind of uh, custom connector that uh, people could connect right to that? So I'm just envisioning a console like a Neo Geo, where maybe you don't want to, you know, you don't want to cut or remove anything at all, and you just kind of have a, a pigtail adapter out back with, you know, a round connector or something that you could just kind of mount right onto the on the inside, like solder it right to the AV driver, so that way you have you don't have to make any modifications at all and use a separate output. Yeah, people often have their own ideas about what they, the way they want to connect things. I don't want to impose anything on that. And I, whatever I come up with, I don't think it's going to be that appealing to everybody. So I, I just prefer people to find their own solution for the connection thing. Um, yeah. I like I, – I could, I, could, I could do various things, but this is the easiest way for me, just to have a very small flat board that's as small as possible, and then other people can work out how they want to connect it. Or if which features they want to use on the board, even. Makes sense. One of the things I often disagree with people on the forums about is um, if if it's clean mod work. So if the mod's done right and it's done clean, but I just have an output connector, you know, it's shielded cable and everything, but if it's just dangling out the back, many people have told me that's ugly, that's terrible practice, and I just... I can't buy into that yet. If you've taken a console that you haven't done any permanent mods and it's good, clean mod work that's reversible if you need to, I don't care how ugly it is, something hanging out in the back. It just it works perfect, and I can switch it out if I ever needed to. So, it's, uh, Half just... of all the games consoles have, a, have an RF cable dangling at the back, so what's the difference? <laughs> that's right. That's right, or even some of the... I think it was a... It might have been the 5200 that has the power cable also pl uh, wired, hardwired into it. Oh, a lot of them have the controllers hardwired. It, it's, it's, I wouldn't worry about things like that. Yeah, I just want to make sure that uh, you know all my work is cleaner nowadays. But when it's stuff like that, I don't really care if it's ugly. I just oh, want it to work right. My my original um, mods that I did on my consoles years and years ago was absolutely horrendous, and I've still got all these consoles with really um, buggered up cases from all that stuff. So yeah, it you learn as you go. Yeah, definitely. And the thing that uh, the guys in the forums always pointed out to me, and it, it took a while for it to sink in, was, you know, if I'm emailing back and forth with my buddies and I say, hey, look, you know, to, uh, ignore the ignore the glue holding the wires in, but this is how you do it, that's fine. But if I'm posting something on a website, especially a site that I didn't realize that, you know, more than half the people that go there, English isn't their first language. So if I'm posting pictures that show one thing but say – Oh, yeah, you know, but don't do it that way. A lot of people will copy just what the pictures are. So I really yeah, got to try to go above and beyond to make sure that the pictures that are on there show good work so I could really kind of make it easier for everybody. Yeah, definitely. That's the way to go. Um, especially when you're doing tutorial or guide type stuff, you really need to get the pictures just right. The text is almost can be omitted sometimes. People don't even read it. They just look at the pictures and copy exactly what's in the picture. Yeah, it's gotten sometimes to the point now where sometimes fault. I put the instructions in the picture. Like, I'll even just use MS Paint to type, like, you know, and make sure to solder this, and I'll put the arrow just, you know, just because. And if you got something in the picture that you don't want people to copy, you just black it out. You're right, yeah. see it. Yep, just put a big X over it or something. <laughs> like, this was from another mod with an arrow or something like that, just to make sure. But 
So um, have you tested the AV driver in any other consoles? Um, yeah, I, that, that, I see, I didn't really know what to expect from it, what applications it would have. Um, I had some ideas because people over the years have sent me or asked me to help them with various mods and um, RGB in particular, and they send me consoles, which I never heard of before, I'd never seen before. How do I AV mod this and this and this? And I'd say, I have no idea. I, I really don't. I can see in the picture there, you've taken a picture of the motherboard, and I can see a video encoder. So you could do it sort of this way, but you'd need you'd need some extra hardware, and that hardware doesn't exist at the moment. So you could learn in electronics and work it out for yourself or not do it. I really didn't have an answer. So, um, yeah, that was sort of... This is where this would come in, and um, it, it. I see. The, I thought it would be useful for some of the older consoles, which have problems with their video encoders. They have problems because the people who designed the board layouts didn't do a very good job, and they didn't really consider the way the signals interact with each other. You get something people call jail bars, which are when uh, a part of the video system interacts with another part of the same video system usually a clock signal or something next to a video trace. Mm. And that was um, that was some of the work that you had done on the PAL master systems. Um, we'd both worked on that, and uh, Steve from HD Retrovision was working on the NTSC versions with me. And uh, I think his theory was that the um, the frequency of the, uh, the one of the pins in the chip was the exact same frequency as one of the video lines. So that's what was causing it on that. But didn't you say on the PAL console you tested, you were able to just um, completely remove the jail bars by moving the uh, where the traces were run? Yeah, I've got a collection of consoles now for uh, usually Sega stuff, um, some versions of different variations of Master System, and some. You sent me a few different. You sent me some Genesis consoles from the United States, um, and they have much different layouts to the Mega Drive ones I have. So I've got a whole lot of hardware here now, and I've looked at a lot of it, and it basically comes down to crap board layouts. Some of the layouts are very good, and they've actually taken care not to have interference from... It's it's Often it's the video, the, the color carrier. That one is a problem. There's also various other clocks in the video system. Um, the higher the frequency, usually it, it becomes less of a problem, but... Uh, so there's a sort of area where it really can interfere, especially if it's a, a big swinging 5-volt clock signal or something horrible like that, which really shouldn't be anywhere near the analog video lines, but they often end up really close. So anyway, they, um, I, I had a look at that, and I've worked out you can fix most of these problems by simply modifying the board in a particular way. The problem with that is each board is its own problem. You can't take... Um, one board and apply the fix of that to another board. And for every console, there's about 20 different layouts over the years. They've, they manufacture these things for um, eight years or so, and they have to keep redesigning them. So you get lots of layouts, and it's a little of a problem. You can, yeah, you got, you got to basically make a, a guide for each layout, and it doesn't really. The AV driver, a, a method of, of attacking, finding the video signal early in the this, in this system, before it gets to the video encoder, it's usually, it's not really that practical, mm. I've found. It's much easier. By, that time, by the time you've showed people how to do that, you might as well show them how to fix the board just <laughs> with some wire. Yeah. 
Yes, that's what I was really finding with the Genesis consoles is because because they're so cheap around here and because I had a lot of people just send me their console and say, hey, we'll try it on mine. And I was always blunt, like, hey, this you know, this could ruin it. I could accidentally make a mistake. And, you know, the people that were okay with that said, yeah, no problem, try it. And there were some where I tried the AV driver, I tried um, Alex Arcade TV's board, and you would just put it in. You wouldn't have to cut anything. You would just, I would always have a separate output connector. Just, um, I would use the Genesis 2 style for, you know, just to make it easier. And there were some where you would just install it. You'd put it right on the RGB out of the chip, or, or not even on the chip. You could just find the vias on the board. And it would look great, but there were some, uh, especially the earliest revisions where, uh, not the earliest, so the in, the in North America there were ones that actually said high definition graphics on the plastic. It was the ones when they stopped saying that on them, um, which is three or four different board revisions where there was nothing you could do, I could possibly do to get rid of the interference. I tried some of the, you know, the fixes of using shielded cable to move the signal away, same like you found in a lot of them. Uh, Steve had showed me a few tricks for that. And it was finally just pulling the pins up, and it was literally just removing the signal from the entire board and using shielded cable to run it over was the only way to do it. And it just kind of makes me wonder what they were thinking when they when they designed the original boards like that. Well, they just didn't care. They um, It's not a good design criteria. When you've got someone designing these things, especially in a big Japanese company or, or any other really large company like this, they have different people doing different tasks, and the person doing the layout would probably not be doing much talking to the person doing the design, or not really a person, the, the department doing the um, hardware design. And the hardware design in Sega consoles is really interesting because it never really changed. It went from the Mark III, it got a little bit more RAM, and the new video chip became the Mars system. It got an extra CPU and a graphics chip, became the Mega Drive. Then it got a whole bunch of other chips and things and became the Saturn, but it never actually got a real revision in the whole, that whole time. It just they kept adding bits and modifying it a little bit. So huh. it's a really freakish type of thing they kept pushing throughout the years until they got to the Dreamcast where they actually redesigned their console finally. Huh, that's an interesting perspective. You know, I wonder how I I always wonder how the teams worked like that because when I worked for a hardware design company, the 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 amount of or the lack of communication between teams within an own, their own company always kind of baffled me. And I ended up always having to be the point guy, not because I'm an expert at anything, because I'm not. I just, I understood enough of a little bit of everything to make it work. But there was, you know, the design of the, the there was an eight-layer board motherboard. And the ground plane, they, they kind of cheated and did a few things that you really shouldn't do because there could be some kind of signal leakage. But I had to go in an EMI chamber to test these things because they were medical devices. So it's not like a consumer product. If it emits anything other than, you know, in a very short wave of frequency, you could affect like a heart rate monitor, pacemakers. So it was really stringent. And having to come back out of there and go, well, how come this is run this way? How come we did the traces? And they just, the teams never talked to each other at all. They never realized what the boards were being used used for and when we first started working with this one I'm not going to say the name but it was a huge company in Taiwan that makes everything and they they finally it took many revisions just for everybody to talk to each other and go oh yeah it's for medical all right well let's just run it this way then that's just I wonder if that was what it was like at Sega they just had their yeah, over here think, the chip team over here you know I think yeah they're very much like that they um they will communicate on the areas where they think it's important so if they have some special requirements, they'll communicate. And the board designs are quite good overall, but there are some strange problems. Um, another problem with um, the Mega Drive 
um, well, one that I was using at least, the Mega Drive 2, one of them, which uh, the original Mega Drive has a, uh, the audio, has got audio in through the cartridge slot, and some, the, the 32X does put audio through in that way, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it does, yeah. Um, and through the cartridge can, slot, yeah. Through the cartridge slot, yeah. It's got an audio input there. The um, the board inside the Mega Drive has 75 ohm resistors terminating that audio input. So if you don't have a cartridge or that that game 32x thing in there, you don't get humming and buzzing picked up by the cartridge slot because you've got these very low impedance resistors holding it very close to ground. So there's no problem there. On the version the version that I had. They just simply left them out. They didn't put them in at all. So you've got these high impedance um, audio connectors just sitting on the cartridge slot, and they just pick up all the humming and buzzing of the bus. Oh, and is that why sounds... some models of the 32X came with that adapter that you plug into the side of the Genesis to terminate oh. that those ports? I, d- I don't know what that came with. Oh, yeah, man, i got to find a picture of it because somebody emailed me a few years ago and they said, you know, you got to update your 32X section because you need one of these. And I went, what is it? Is it something like only in PAL regions? And they said, no, it's if you bought an earlier 32X in America, it came with one of these and you were supposed to, like where the Sega CD would go, you would plug this in. Oh, but this wouldn't have caused the problem there. It's um, only if you've got... Uh, you're just playing without any any extra hardware. That's when it has the problem because that's when it's got these audio lines in the cartridge slot. It just picks up all the buzzing from, and it will change with the game. So if the game is doing something CPU intensive, you can hear it. And if the address lines near the um, audio thing were moving a lot, you could hear it then. And um, it really bothered me for a long time until I worked out what was what was going on. And that's just the audio in those consoles is generally pretty poor. But um, that 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 particular model that I had was awful because of the um, the buzzing from that. The, and it's simply putting some resistors on those two lines and pulling them down again, 100 ohm or something, just solved the problem. And they just left it off for no apparent reason. Just on that, I don't know. I think they eventually put they had that version. They I saw another later version which they put it back on. And the, all the early versions had it, so they just the, the engineer one day, oh, what are these resistors for? Oh, who knows? Let's just remove them. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't get it. That's probably exactly what happened. You know, but, the, um, the, the audio on been... a lot of these consoles uh, has been so noisy over the years, and I've used all of your tricks, like um, doing the audio separate from the video, um, you know, both shield and cable, and, and some of them. You know, there's that, the famous where if you get an all-white screen, you know, you get the buzz through the audio type of thing. Um, I wish more consoles had digital audio mods available for them, because at, uh, the SNES one, at least, you don't get any of that. You don't get any of the interference at all. Yeah, I, I haven't really experimented much with digital audio. I don't really have a setup for it. So, um, yeah, um, it it definitely is a, a good solution because it, well, the optical at least um, would completely isolate the the problem of the video taking the same path as the audio electrically. Then whenever you have a video and an audio signal traveling along the same cable, they have to share the ground return. And if that's not a very, very solid ground return, if there's any noise making it, because it has resistance inductance, the cable, it will that ground return will be compromised, and there will be some signal between the two points of ground. There's the signal at the each end of the cable. So if you put a, a probe across the both ends of the ground lead of an audio video cable, you'll see a little bit of a signal, 
and that little bit of a signal is a sum of all the video signals, and you, that gets applied to the audio because it's using the same reference. Hmm. You sort of get what I'm saying. So that ends up in the audio signal by default. You can't get rid of it. And that will always be present as long as there is an audio and a video signal sharing the same ground return. The, the solution to that is to not connect your audio and video via the same cable, is to have them branch off from the console directly in their own paths and they should never connect anywhere else. So have your audio amplifier and your video display and they shouldn't share the same cable. That's why I distribute two connectors with my kits. I have an audio uh, audio plug and video plug. You don't have to use them, but if you want the best result, you should, because that way there's no none of that buzzing you get if you have them separate. And what about with shielded cables? Does that not make a difference because they're still connected in the actual uh, multi-out connector? Well, shielding is not really the goal in an, in an, in an um, audio-video cable. There's a lot of interactions between the signals, but... The most common ones, it's there's a one called capacitive coupling, which is what, the one you get when you've got two parallel lines very close to each other. They form a capacitor. That's what shielding is supposed to prevent when you have a shield, and that is a problem. Um, some of the, the really good SCART cables have internal shielding and the audio-only um, separate shielding. The um, Saturn ones, the later Saturn ones and the Dreamcast ones do it. The Microsoft Xbox ones do it. Mm and a few other really good ones. Um, but th- that's important. But the most important is to have a very low-resistance ground connect, low-resistance, low, and very tight coupling. So to have the ground around the cable as a shield, but a, not just a shield, but a, a ground around the cables. So the distance between the... When, see, video signals have got a very high current flowing through them, and audio signals have a very low current and higher voltage. So it's much easier for the video signals to get into the audio than it is for the audio to get into the video. And the, the video signals also interact with each other always. But it's the difference between... Um, a composite video will t- interact with an RGB signal. You'll see it on the screen. and Because the, the composite video contains extra information which is not present in RGB. But when you've got RGB signals interfering with each other so that you get them all adding to each other, the result is just a little bit darker on the screen or, or a little bit lighter, depending if it's adding or subtracting. It really its not a problem. So it, it depends on the outcome. It's how bad is this problem? What can I do? Should I, do I need to do anything to, to, to change it or is it just okay to accept it? Because sometimes it really is impossible to really eliminate. You have to use, if you want to do it properly, you'd use basically a VGA cable or something like that nature to do all your video connections. Otherwise, right. anything less than that, you will get interference. I bought a bunch of VGA cables over the years just to hack up for projects, and there are some that um, every line, so the RGB lines are double shielded, and then other or other lines are also shielded, and then the entire cable itself is shielded. Yeah, that's They're not right. necessarily all expensive. Some of them were just $10 cables. So, But they're, they're big and they're thick and they're horrible. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> and and you can't you can't not have that. You, you, you sort of you got to, the best trade offs. I think are the um the, the best design cables, RGB cables. That is, um, are the ones for the Sega Saturn and the Dreamcast. I like them because they're not very thick, but they have just the right amount of of shielding and and internal constructions to make them very thin, very flexible. They're very long as well. 
and they they do the job just right. They don't go overboard like the Microsoft Xbox One does. It, it's um it's too thick, I think, and it's too stiff, and it it's a bit a bit overdone. And you're talking uh, about the official Sega cables. Yes, I'm talking. About, I'm talking about the official cables here. And do they um don't they use composite video for sync in those cables? Uh, everything does. That is that is how it's done in Sky. Right. Yeah. It's that. But so why is it that over the years that when I've been testing it, just what you were exactly what you were describing before, but because uh, when you get composite video running alongside it, it causes the interference. Is it just simply because some of the cheaper cables you find don't have good shielding on them? Oh, I should point out that um the Dreamcast one doesn't use composite video. It has its own signal because I think they worked it out. They worked out that the composite video was causing problems. So they had a. It's not a TTL sync or something like that you'd find on older console. It's specifically designed for the um, for driving SCART. It's a SCART sync driver pin, which doesn't have any video signal on, it, so it won't interfere with any RGB lines. But hmm. sorry, what was your question again? So why is it that when you find, uh, especially like, uh, I mean, I don't want to call them out, but if there's uh, Play Asia has five dollar SNES cables that I, I literally I bought them just to get the SNES connector on the end and throw the rest out. But when you use those, it's like the worst cable I've ever used in my life. I mean, the interference oh, yeah. is insane. Is it just because it's no no shielding at all, so the composite video lines just you know run along? It's probably just a network cable, so they probably have the composite video twisted pair over the uh, you know over the RGB oh, it's line. Not, it's not it's not even twisted pair. It's just um it's basically uh, the cheapest. It's the sort of cable you get with um a controller or something like that, a game controller, even less quality than that. It's very very little copper in it. That's how they make them cheap. Plastic doesn't cost anything. Copper does. So if you remove all the copper, you can make a cable which costs two dollars or something like that. They, the way that the people who make these cables, they don't really understand anything about how video works or how cables work. Even they just, they just make it. They got a diagram and they, they, they connect the points. So they don't even get the points right. Um, there was a lot of cables which were miswired. They often um, yeah. mis- wired the is uh, uh, on SCART you need to apply some voltage to a, a pin to turn to RGB mode, but mm-hmm. they would they would do things like connect five volt supplies directly to that pin, which is way too much for it. I've got a, a satin cable which um it's got a satin's got a, a pin which has a nine volt power supply on it on the PAL mm-hmm. consoles, and it would connect that pin directly to this um, RGB status pin, which really wants three volts. And it just basically, you can smell the TV, the little resistor inside the TV burning oh, when you no. take that. Because it, it just starts pumping um, voltage into it. And it, just, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And eventually it burns. It, it's still, the TV may or may not switch to RGB anymore. But it's just such a, a very poor design. And no one really put much, these cables that is, they, they just don't. That's they don't crazy. Care. You know, I was just talking, uh, when I had Steve on, uh, I was talking to him about, you know, what is when you're talking about wrong, wrong mods, wrong cables, you know, there's different levels. There's wrong, like, well, maybe it's not the right way to do things, but it'll work. And then it's wrong, like, well, after a while, it probably will shorten the life of your console or, or device. But we're talking, instead of it lasting 30 years, it'll last 25. And then there's just wrong, like, you smell the resistor burning, your TV's going to stop switching to RGB mode. Oh, yeah, yeah, um... Just yeah, some of these cables are, are really bad, um, but most of them are alright. Uh, they're just—they're not alright, as in that they'll—they'll um, work. They'll basically work, but they, they have no ground. You see, the ground connection is just a wire. 
it's as thin a wire as all the other wires. So you've got four video signals there, RGB and video, composite video or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you've got these three conductors. They're all sharing a return path, which is the same size as as all that. So it's, it's at least, it's too small. It's It's got to carry... Um, four times the current of those other wires that's got to return. Everything's got to return via that path. And if it's a really thin wire, what you could do is um, basically, if, you, if you're making an RGB cable and you've got nothing but the shittest wire available, simply use more wires for ground. That's the easier solution. Instead of using one wire for ground, use four of them. doesn't matter. Use five of them. Use as many as you can. That way, at least you get some better connection. What about using the shielding for ground? Yes, if you've got shielding, it helps a lot. Um, also, not just shielding. Shielding can come in various different types. You can get right. this foil stuff, which is a bit crap. Or you the can wire get, mesh thing that you know kind of goes yeah, together. And, yeah, the braided shield is much better, and that, that also provides a um, really low resistance. And you can get various grades of that, and the really good stuff, the ones they use for um, are robots, uh, robotic arms and things like that. That cable is really, really good for video cables <laughs> because it, it's very flexible and it's very, it's um, got very good um, shielding properties. Some of them do anyway. Probably expensive I, I, though, right? Oh yeah, probably. I, I've, I've got a roll of it. And I've been using that for my video cables, but um, it's not cheap. Uh, Somebody recommended from a DigiKey in America. You know, they they sell all the little components and stuff, and you buy anything from two to twenty thousand of whatever you need from them. And somebody sent me a link like, oh yeah, if you, you know, if you're making your own cables, use this. And it was like $140 a roll for like 50 feet or something. Mm-hmm. It was insane. I just I didn't I didn't want to spend the money on it. So I just yeah, it, it's it's really not necessary to go all out on these things. But um, it's a bit hard to recommend anything specific because it's all regional. You can't just go buying cable from another country. It, it's just too heavy to, sh- to send. It's, right, yeah. it's not practical at all. You've got to see what's available locally and use that. Um, basically, any cable which is reasonably... You have to have something that's reasonably flexible. If you have really rigid cables, they will break the connections to the solar connections you will break because they don't bend. So you'll, you'll move your console a few times and you'll end up snapping the solar connections because it just... Um, right. They call it um, fatigues the the connections fatigue and it doesn't work very well. So you need something reasonably flexible and you need something with some shielding, some good ground connections, and basically try and if you if you can get some with extra conductors and try and put the video conductors away from the audio conductors a bit and any extra wires connect them to ground on both sides. So you sell cables uh, alongside your kits. Oh well, separately, but I mean you sell them. That, that would match up with your kits as well. Are those cables that you make? Do you get them pre-made somewhere? Yeah, they are. They're made for me. Mm-hmm. They're made because I I think it's important to. I sell the audio and video cables separately, but you can bind. They come with some um, tube. You can heat shrink tubing, which you can use to attach them together to make basically one cable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to have the audio cables slightly longer than the video cable because the video cables are not very flexible but the audio cables are so it it just makes the cable works much better if you if they're so i get the video cables made a little bit shorter i buy the pre-made audio cables and i i get the video cables made a little bit shorter i imagine it's way easier to find good quality uh, pre-made audio cables so i mean as long as you know you're ordering because you know you just as long as you get the shielded ones you know it's funny, uh, yeah. too. It's hard 
because I buy a lot of stuff off of Amazon just because it's easy. It, it's really hard trying to find which one is the best because I've bought a $5 audio cable that was perfect and I bought a $15 audio cable that was absolutely garbage with almost no shielding on it. So you can't just buy the more expensive one. You really, unfortunately, have to know what you're getting. You, you have to buy it and you have to cut it open and you have to look inside and then you go, oh, that one was good after all, I'll buy another. That's <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's how I've learned over the years. And I, I wish there was one one repository I could send everybody to. Generally speaking, in the U.S., Monoprice is pretty good. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll occasionally get something bad from them. But um, the I don't know about the rest that, of the world. The problem is that uh, when you buy something from some particular source and you buy it again a year later, you've got no idea whether you're going to get the same thing or not. You might even get something that looks identical, but inside it's all different. So right. when I, I do my, I've got that problem with I do electronics manufacturing and so on. I don't do it here; I, I outsource it. But I have problems with the quality and and things like connectors and so on. They, if I buy something now and I buy something uh, a year later, I've got to check it again to make sure it's still the same thing inside. And I've got to cut open things like the those um uh, compass the component kits I've got for the they work on the uh, Atari and the NES RGB. Mm-hmm. They've got cables that come with them, and I've had problems with those cables in the past um, being of not very good quality inside. So I have to cut them apart. Every every time I buy them, I cut a, sample, a section of samples apart to check that they're still all right inside, so it's enough copper in there. Hmm. You know, uh, real quick, I actually forgot about that as well. So you have a board that could attach to your uh, NES, N64, and Atari RGB kits that converts it to component video? Yeah, um, people like component video. I, I don't really see it as that all that useful, but in uh, where you're from there, it's much more popular than RGB. Yeah, and a lot of it too is just like um, there are so many people that, are, that start out saying, hey, you know, I have this... TV that, you know, it's got almost no hours on it, and it's really great, and it's a consumer-grade TV, so it's not like an RGB monitor, but it's pretty much brand new, and it's got component video inputs in the back, and, you know, so why not? You know, why why bother going through all the trouble when you can get a little converter like that one? So that's, um, you know, they certainly have their place, and it is something that, uh, it's a big help to a lot of people. Oh, yeah, certainly. And that's, um... So it, no tricks to that, really. You basically just wire it up and then, you know, have your, you know, uh, composite video output, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, it, it, it works, basically it works by, um, it uses some properties of the component, oh, sorry, the composite video encoder chip, and it it just takes the output directly from that, which is clamped to a DC level, and... It just does a, a transform to turn into the different component signals and, and works like that. It's very simple. It doesn't really require much, but it can't be used as a general purpose um, component converter. So um, a question that I've seen posted a lot is why would somebody use that instead of just buying one of those cheap SCART to component video converters? Well, they both work. Well, um, that my one will work... Um, it will work, that's for sure. But um, the cheap ones, the SCART components often they are uh, they're terrible. A lot of them are terrible. <laughs> they're yes. just uh, absolutely terrible. So they're the worst designs. When I said it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're total garbage. <laughs> um, I'm sure the good ones. There's a lot of different ones out there. I'm sure there are some good ones and they're they're fine. But the ones I've seen, the ones that people have shown or showed pictures on the side, the designs are just they've got no idea what they're doing. They've got potentiometers in there, and they're all 
You don't need that. There's no reason to put them in there. They're just... Yeah, even just, not being... The copies of a copy of a copy, they're just crap. Yeah, even not having any any real solid electrical engineering background, when I, I first bought one of those and I plugged it in, I'm going, why does everything have a purple tint to it? And I opened it up and I saw potentiometers and I went, video's pretty specific. You shouldn't be sitting there going, yeah, all right, good enough. Like it's, so. Yeah, because someone's sitting there and the fact you're going, yeah. What if they're hungover? They have too much yeah, to drink. Yeah. Or what if they're colorblind and don't even know they're colorblind? So they're just sitting there oh. and just, all right, fine, here you go. But yeah, and, and then to, to adjust that, you've got to learn how all these things interact with each other. And, and that's actually not trivial. You don't know. You've got to sit there and twiddle everything for an hour or two. And you don't, it's, it's no, just buy one that's right the first time. Yeah, that's why um, a lot of people, when uh, HD Retrovision came out with their cables, a lot of people gave them shit about that. Like, oh, you just stuck a RGB to component thing in a cable and sold it. No, that is not what they did. <laughs> they, they put a lot of research and time into that. So that's why it's, uh, you know, if you have a NES RGB or the N64 or the Atari and you want component, don't buy one of those cheap converters. Definitely buy the one that's made for it. You know, get, get from your same shop. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, for anybody listening, just if you have one of those, the CSY clones, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it served its purpose, but move along to something better. So, but. Oh, but the, you can you can have um, a converter like that. I, I think some of the original made the original CSY one. I don't know. Maybe some of them were all right. I think the there's, nothing, there's nothing CSY wrong with okay. the idea. I think Extron made one that was really good, and I think certain models of the Kramers were good. Certain weren't. And Key Digital, an American company, um, as long you just have to make custom cables because everything RGB for them was just a oh, PGA yes. connector. But those were good. I actually met Michael, the uh, the lead designer. He's this very scary Russian guy, I think. So I met him at a trade show years ago when I worked for my other company. At least I think it was him. But I asked him two questions, and he was just very stern and answered politely, and then turned around and walked right away. <laughs> so, okay. But yeah. So um, what's next on the horizon? Do you have any other products coming out? Do you have anything else you're working on, or are you just kind of keeping up um, you know, what you've already been releasing? Um, I've got, well, on the immediately, I've got to get this. Um, a few things need a little bit of maintenance. Um, I've got to get the Famicom extra um, power audio board back up in stock and the Nintendo 64 that needs new software. And there's one other thing I've got to do. Yes, that's right. The Atari version needs an adapter board for the junior model, which a lot of people have been requesting. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Did your did your flex cable thing work for that one? Well, I it, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Um, oh. it should. It should. <laughs> so uh, that's just that. a flex cable that allows it to install into a, a 2600 junior, so that you don't have to worry yeah. about getting it in. That's the so I can put any any spot on the. I'll have to find a really good spot. I've got a few bits of the hardware. I'll have to sit down with it and find a, a way of installing it with the way the flex fable will fit. Gotcha. Well, um, that's cool. Also, um, I've got some upcoming products, but I tend not to talk about upcoming products just to, to give me a bit of peace and quiet. Yeah, I don't blame you. You'd get, you know, if it's not within the next month or two or if it's still in development, you know, just, uh, mm. yeah, I guess keep it under wraps, but, um, well, if there's anything else you want anybody to, you know, anybody to hear, um, just let them know now, I guess. And if not, obviously I'll, you know, I do that the weekly news thing. So anytime there's something posted, I'll report and 
Anytime something comes on sale, I always just tweet about it right away for people that watch. So. Yeah, that's all. I don't have anything to add. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm sure uh, everybody's going to enjoy this as much as I did. It's so cool to get the the inside scoop on products that we all use all the time. So thank you very much. All right. No problem. Good talking to you. All right. Take care, guys. I'll see you next week.